The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. In this book on page 15 is the preaching text of the morning, and there's some scattered verses in, in chapters 22 and 23, beginning in verse 15 of Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, namely offered Isaac, you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sands that are on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of your enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. And now, skipping down to chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And now again down to verse 12. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who were in and at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that were in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. So God, we would just confess that after a a busy full week with joys and sorrows and highs and lows, we really need to see you. 
And we need to trust you. We need to love you. We need your help to do that. And so thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, which shows us your interpretation of all of history that we might walk in step with your heart, that we might see who you are and respond how you call us to. Lord, help us, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the, one of the fun surprises for me in this, uh, in this Genesis series that I, I didn't really expect, but it's happened almost every week as I've studied, has been to read Hebrews 11 in parallel with Genesis and let God interpret His Word in Genesis through His Word in Hebrews. And Hebrews 11, as you know, is this chapter on the essence and then the outcome of faith. So what, what is faith? And then what, is it, what does it do when it's working? And this week, uh, I tell you, I often try to put myself in the story and ponder with a, a sanctified imagination some of Abraham's actions. Just, just thinking about him and thinking about him trusting God last week to resurrect his son. Where did that come from? And, and trusting God this week we'll see to buy a burial place for his wife in a foreign land that God had promised would one day belong to his people. And I was reminded of Hebrews eleven six, and thought, I want us to be like this as a people. Like Hebrews eleven six, like I think Abraham is. So here's what Hebrews eleven six says, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. <laughs> we could spend the rest of our lives just trying to do that verse, right? So how do we draw near to God? How do we, how do we please him, right? Notice it doesn't say appease him. He's already been appeased by the death of Jesus. But how do we walk in a way that pleases him? How do we draw near to him? Well, first, we believe he exists. And I don't think, if you're going to read the context of the book of Hebrews, that just as kind of an acknowledgement that, yeah, there's a God out there. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Instead, the book of Hebrews, that would make the case over and over again, Jesus is better than all of these shadows, is saying you have to believe that he's more real and more near than anything else. And I just had to stop and go, do do I believe that? (laughs) That God's more real and more near than anything else. To operate like that, is a strange thing in a world that operates with humanity and self-expression and instant gratification at the center of everything with very little reference to God. So to live like this, you're going to be strange, like Abraham was strange. Do we live, do we believe that God is more real and more near than anything else. But that's not all it says. So not only do we have to believe God's more real and more near, but apart from Jesus, that would be terrifying. But because of Jesus, not only do we need to believe that, but we need to believe that he rewards those who seek him. That's amazing. The God of the universe, 
who holds all things together by the word of His power, when you draw near to Him, when you seek Him, He rewards you. In other words, we need to know that God, because of Jesus, is completely for us and will reward our drawing near. Many of us believe in God in our minds. We've trusted Jesus, but we don't draw near very often because we imagine Him frowning at us or frustrated with us or shaking His head, waiting for us to turn into that better version of ourselves that we imagine is coming just around the corner, right? That's what you do with yourself. You go, okay, five years from now, I'm going to be who I want to be, right? Five years from then, where are you? still wanting to be some better version of yourself and thinking that God is looking at you the way that you look at yourself instead of knowing, no, He just says draw near because of Jesus and He'll reward me. What if you begin to think of things the way God thinks of things in His economy? True faith believes He exists and that because of Jesus, He rewards those who seek Him. Now this reward, His reward, is not normally that He changes your circumstances, though sometimes He does that if that's what's needed. But His reward, what we see in Hebrews, what we've seen in Genesis, is that you get His promises. And you get His presence. We keep talking about this. God's people drawing near in God's place to enjoy His presence and be assured of His promises. God is pleased when we seek Him and when we draw near and trust that He's going to work for our good and provide us with His presence. And when we do that, if you'd believe He's going to work for my good, if I will draw near, He'll work for my good. Despite my mess, He'll work for my good. If I draw near right now because of Jesus, if you do that, He draws near to us. He gives us what we need to fight and confess sin. Gives us what we need to endure suffering. Gives us what we need to walk out of that shame that's been holding you for years and decades. He gives us what we need to remember His promises, to look forward, not just to tomorrow and all the anxieties that come with tomorrow, but to look all the way forward to our final place with Him, the new heavens and new earth, and walk in glad-hearted faith that overflows in obedience. So as we walk through this text today, that's what I want you to have in the back of your mind. This is how Abraham is operating. This is what's in his heart. Abraham, in all these circumstances, in all these trials, believes God exists. He's more real and more near than anything else and that God will reward him if he draws near to him. So as you see Abraham, think that's what's in the background. And then ask yourself, God, do I believe that? God, help me believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. So let's dive in and see this at work. Point number one, the promised people preserved by faith. So last week we saw the sanctified faith of Abraham kind of walk step by step by step through a tough test God had given him. And we said that he was able to walk that out because of a resurrection hope, according to Hebrews 11. We saw the faith of Isaac last week who carried the wood up the hill and was willing to die in faith, trusting the promises of God, trusting his father knew best because his father knew the Father. We saw that God always provides to keep his promises. 
And that the ultimate way he's provided for us is in his son, Jesus, right? Jesus, who also carried the cross up the hill on his back, was hung on the cross in our place, died the death we deserve to die, and then rose again so that all the promises of God, all the promises made to Abraham, all the promises made in the whole Bible find their yes where? In Jesus Christ. And all of Hebrews and all of Genesis are pointing to that reality. And so Abraham and Isaac have walked this faith journey. God's provided a ram. They've sacrificed. They've worshipped. What happens next? Look at verses 15 to 19. God shows up and he says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now you could take this passage out of context and you could say that all of this depended on Abraham doing the exact right thing. But notice, like David emphasized when he read it, that God does not show up and first say, I wasn't sure what you would do. He doesn't show up and say, you're lucky you did the right thing. All my promises were up for grabs. He doesn't show up and say, I was really on pins and needles about what was going to happen here. Instead, he shows up and says, I've sworn by myself. This is meant to be a reference back to Genesis 15 where God swore by who? Himself as he walked through the animals. God saying, this is my covenant. This was my test. I was holding all of this in my hand, but oh, how I'm pleased with you. How I'm pleased to see your maturing, sanctified faith. Abraham was already counted righteous. God had already made a covenant by his own self. I mean, how many times have we seen Abraham completely blow it and God still swoops in to keep all of his promises? Right? Over and over again, we've said his faith is very imperfect, though it's real, and not even Abraham's imperfect faith can thwart, can thwart God's promises. But this should encourage us because this obedience was real. <laughs> it was real. If you go, man, I've, I just blow it all the time. Be encouraged that God will mature your faith because God will keep his promise to himself to he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. And he's growing Abraham's faith so that Abraham really obeyed by faith, flowing from his real faith and meant to grow that faith in him all the more now. We know how this works as parents. Parents Often, kids, you probably know this, your parents sometimes give you tasks or ask you to do things that seem like just a little bit too much. <laughs> like they're just a little bit stretching. Like, why is dad or mom asking me to do that? Right? And then at the end, they come and they say, good job. I knew you could do it. I knew you could do it. Right? Because they know what's best to help you grow what's best to help you flourish, what's best to help you see what's in you that's bigger than yourself. They delight to draw near to you and say, well done. They delight to stretch you and set you up for that moment they can come and say, good job. 
right? And that's just as formative in our faith and in our maturity as at times I have to come along and say, man, we've got to do it different, right? Parents delight to equip and give opportunities to say, well done. And God is testing Abraham, knowing his faith would grow, knowing Abraham would respond by drawing near to his promises, and God was eager to draw near to him afterwards and tell him, well done. Remind him of his promises. So Abraham obeyed out of his real, growing, but imperfect faith, and God was eager to come and say, well done, I'm pleased. Well done, faithful servant. Now notice how God reminds him in three different ways of this promise that he would have a people through his offspring. And notice how God just, every time he shows up and talks to Abraham, what does he do? He just keeps reminding him, here's who I am. Here's my promise. I'm still keeping it. And I pray that you'd see that that's what he does for us. So look at number one. He says he will multiply his offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. Right now, Abraham and Sarah have one son, and God is saying that number is going to grow exponentially. It's going to grow exponentially. Number two, the offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. That's a way to say this promised offspring is going to crush his enemies, go into enemy territory, and those places where the enemy right now holds, one day that offspring, they're going to belong to him. That's, that's what it's saying. That's what the gate of his enemies means. That's a way to say, hey, I remember my promise to you in Genesis 12, but even further back, I'm keeping my promise from Genesis 3 that there's a son coming, an offspring coming, that's going to crush the head of the snake. Evil will lose. Shalom will return. God will reign and his people will reign with him. That's what he's saying. It's going to multiply. One is still coming. Number three, this offspring will bring his reign and his blessing to all the nations, to the whole world. Now, of course, we know, we'll see some in Genesis. You could go read Exodus, you could go read Numbers, you can keep reading the Bible and see that God does keep his promises in the near context to his people. The offspring of Abraham grows exponentially in Egypt. By the time they leave Egypt, there's millions of them, not three of them. <laughs> that's, that's a big exponential growth. God protects them. God gives them many victories over their enemies as they're in their wandering and as they're going back towards the promised land. God uses Israel to bless the nations over and over again. You can even think of the story of Joseph in Egypt, right, where evil has tried to win. And here Joseph is blessing the nations with his wisdom. Even in Genesis, we see it. But ultimately, all of those multitude of offspring, so think of it, Isaac here, and it goes like this. What it's going to do is going to come back like this to one offspring who's going to keep all these promises in far more breathtaking and phenomenal ways than stopping famines and multiplying to four million people or so. And that offspring is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the serpent and reigns victorious. Jesus did that by entering the mess of our world and perfectly obeying where the other offspring of Abraham, think nation of Israel, think David, think Moses, think others, think us, He's going to do what we could never do. Where we fell short, he would perfectly obey. 
In this Jesus, he didn't reign by some amazing political feat, by some overthrow of the empire. His perfect obedience led him to a criminal's cross. That's what his reign looked like, where the perfectly righteous, sinless Son of God would be crucified to undo the curse of sin and the power of death for all who would believe in him. And this is a side note from the main point, but that reality of how our perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient, the God-man Jesus Christ came into the world in victory, looked like death before resurrection, that reality should probably reshape more than we know what the life of Christian victory looks like in this world. If you say, man, in my family, at my job, in the world, in the culture, all I do is serve and and love, and all that I find is loss. And all I do is lay down my life, and all that happens is I get beat up. (laughs) Isn't that the way of our Savior? You might say, there's no fruit. Nothing good has happened. And I might say, well, be like Abraham and wait 60 years. And you might say, I don't have 60 years. And I'd say, yeah, you do. You have eternity to walk this out like Jesus did. And that gospel, that good news of that offspring, the Son of God who laid down his life for the sins of the world is to be preached and bless all the nations with eternal life, eternal joy, and living hope that overcomes Satan, sin, suffering, and death. So that now, in Jesus, there is a multitude of true offspring of Abraham by faith all around the world. All these promises have come true. Those who have trusted in Jesus receive the blessing of eternal life where all the nations eventually will be gathered around his throne and declare his victory over sin, shame, death, and the devil for all of eternity. That's what's coming. God has kept his promises. God has kept his promise all the way here to Lakeville, Minnesota that he would have a people to enjoy his presence forever. When you read your Bible and you think of the nations, don't be kind of an insular Westerner that goes, we're awesome and the nations means everyone else. Right? Think of the nations flowing forth from this place over from somewhere in the Middle East coming all the way to us. We are the nations. This promise was for us. Right? This isn't a promise that America would then go and like do all these awesome things. This is God's going to get the whole world for himself and we're evidence of it in Lakeville, not the center of it. Isn't that amazing? Like, should praise God for keeping his promise in such a way that we're sitting here rejoicing in him even now. God is going to work. He's promising Abraham that he's going to have a people who would draw near to him, believe he exists, believe he rewards those who seek him, and please him by imperfect but real faith in Jesus. God is keeping his promise of an offspring that goes to offspring, that goes back to an offspring, that goes to offspring (laughs) for all of eternity. All right, point number two. The promised place purchased by faith. So God keeps his promise of a people, but now in the sad story of the death of Sarah, we see him keep his promise of a place and Abraham's faith in that promise. Look at verses 1 to 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I was thinking about this again this week. I met with a couple this last week, just getting to know them more. They've been married for over 43 years. 
Right, praise, praise God for that. That's amazing. That's a long time to be married. Sarah and Abraham have been married easily over 100 years. Right? None of us will probably celebrate our 110th wedding anniversary, whatever theirs was, but that's where they're at. Can you imagine what they've been through and seen together? Right? They probably had, I mean, this is kind of crazy too, they probably had 30, 40 years pre the call of God. Now they've had about 60 to 65 post the call of God. Think of the long, crazy journeys that they've been on together. Think of the famines they've seen. Think of the failures they've seen in one another. Think of the the frustrations and the disagreements. And then think of all the great joys that they've experienced together as God has come in and rescued and come in and saved. And think of the joy they've had to watch each other mature in their faith. And in all of it, this was Abraham's partner in a growing, imperfect faith. What they had experienced most together was that God keeps His promises to His people, no matter what people, circumstances, or sin get in their way. They had Isaac together. Isaac is probably now 37. And they spent those last 20 years laughing and rejoicing in the God who never let them go. Think of those last 20 years of their life, how happy they were to just have been walking by faith together. And this morning is real because of what they shared. When it says, Abraham went into mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, I just want to stop and say it's a good thing to weep over death. It's a good thing to weep over those we love. It's a good thing to weep over those who have walked the walk of faith with us and now gone to be with God. So what would have been customary... In other words, someone reading this text back in this time, what they would have expected happens next is that Abraham returns to the place they grew up and he buries her there. But that's not what happens. Instead, Abraham spends the next 14 verses purchasing a burial site from a prominent member of the Hittite community for a very high price. You can go and kind of read the back and forth banter. You're supposed to read it before you came in here. There's a reading plan. If you didn't, go read it this afternoon. You can kind of catch up on just the back and forth there. And, and what you'll find is kind of this ritualistic thing. Now, commentaries I read are split on if the Hittites were really a hospitable people, all sorts of respect and honor for God, and therefore Abraham or if this was actually kind of understood as a passive-aggressive, Minnesota-nice Facebook marketplace process to drive the price up. And I think where I landed is the latter, unfortunately. Now, now here's why I think that. Notice that Abraham starts by asking for a cave and instead ends up with a whole field. This is like talking to Spectrum on the phone. Right? We want internet, and all of a sudden they're just selling you everything else. If you work for Spectrum, that's your job. I get it. I'm not mad at you. But the point is that Abraham starts looking for a cave, and he, he leaves with a really, really expensive piece of land that holds the cave in it as well. So I think this is kind of a haggling, and at the end when it says Abraham listened to him, it's saying, okay, I get it. That's the price. I'll pay the price. So he pays a pretty penny to buy this field, have this cave, have his wife buried there. Now, why would you do this? Well, the only answer, right, kids, you know this, 
is that the reason you spend a lot of money on something is because you think it's really valuable, right? So you, you pay for what you think something is worth or because it means a lot to you, right? You pay a, a high price for something you really want. So this cave and land, Abraham must have really wanted. So let's put these two things together. One, Abraham did not go back to Sarah's hometown to bury her, which was customary. Two, he pays a high price for this field and cave that was way above market value. So why does he do that? Right? Why not just go back right away? And why not in the 11th hour of haggling with the Hittite, does he not say, you know what, I can bury her for free back where we came from? Well, I think this is one of the most profound instances of his growing faith that we've seen so far in Genesis. I think it's because God had promised him that one day the land of Canaan would belong to his people. And so Abraham says, I'm going to have my wife and someday myself buried where all of our offspring will eventually dwell. I'm not going to make them have to go all the way back to Ur. They're going to come here and they're going to see God kept his promises. God worked that his people would have a place to enjoy his presence. Abraham has no idea when God's people will have this place as their own. And we have no reason to believe he thought it would be anytime soon. But Abraham knows through his now almost 62-year journey with God that although sometimes it takes time, decades, multiple decades, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Do you, do you look at life like that? Do you, do you look out with that kind of future hope? And someday, as the people dwell there, this cave, this field, will serve as a reminder that God did indeed keep his promises and that he is worth trusting even when the promises seem far off. Abraham knows that God's people will be in God's place to enjoy his presence, just like he said. And this burial place at Hebron becomes quite the symbol of the faith of God's people that one day they will dwell in his place. I'm just going to show you, if you ever read this one, weird story, I'm just going to show you like this cave becomes kind of a, a marker in the people of Israel to look forward and say, God's going to work. God's going to give us this place. So I'll just tell you the references. You can look them up later. So Abraham buries Sarah here after haggling for this price. Then in Genesis 25, Abraham is buried here by Isaac, laying his bones in this place. In Genesis 49, 31, Isaac is buried here by Jacob, saying, hey, God's going to do this. We're going to keep putting our bones here, keep burying our offspring here, because God's going to keep his promise. In Genesis 50, 31, Jacob is buried here by his sons. And the very last lines in Genesis are from the mouth of Joseph. And what he prophesies is that one day soon God's people will carry his bones up to the promised land. Right? Why? right? We're supposed to see that. The author of Genesis writes it this way that you'd go, there's the cave again. There's the cave again. Why, why that cave? Oh yeah, God made a promise. He's going to keep his promises. People are trusting in his promise. And eventually, Moses carries up Joseph's bones as God rescues Israel from slavery and puts them right there in that cave in the end. 
And one more interesting note I don't have time to go to, but if you want to go look at when Israel sent out their spies to the promised land, there's two spies that believe, right? That say God's going to give us this land. And you know where they visit before they go back and they report? They visit Hebron. (laughs) They visit this cave, I think, and they go, yeah, God's going to keep his promise. He's already here. Verses 19 to 20, look at it with me. After this haggling, after this setting up of this legacy of faith, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, promised land. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abram as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Abraham looked far ahead to the promise and buried his wife as did generation after generation there. So, so here's this context, right? Death is still real here. In fact, if you were gonna, could make a case that this chapter is really about God overcoming death with his promises because death is just all over this chapter. Death is still real and present like it has been since Genesis 3. The curse is still real. The sadness and shadow of sin and suffering and death still lingers. But Abraham also knows God's promise remains. <laughs> Final victory final blessing is still coming that will reach the nations from this nation, from this place, and bring God's people into God's place. And so Abraham lives now in light of that future reality. He invests now in the present in light of that future promise. He mourns now with great future hope. So I don't know. I don't know for all of you what's going on in your life right now. I don't know where God's promises seem far off. And these were really far off. Like hundreds of years, way beyond you, far off. But because of the promise kept in Jesus that God would send an offspring to bless the nations, to have ultimate victory over sin and death, you can trust that no matter how long the wait, God's promises come true. They do. (laughs) They come true. They will come true. And this silly, haggling, and costly purchase of a tomb in the promised land and all the people that bear their bones thereafter, Abraham, show that faith is what faith does. It looks beyond present circumstances and beyond present trials and looks to the God who always keeps his promises no matter how windy the road or how long it takes. That's what faith does. He's with his people. He'll have his people in his place to enjoy his presence. This is our God. This is our God. And he has proven he is for us and promises, will, promises to keep being with us in Jesus. So if you ever wonder, well, is he still for me? You look to Jesus and say, he who gave up his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's read here is this closing, Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. It says, These all died in faith. So this is a commentary, I think, on everything we've just seen about Abraham and Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And uh, full disclosure, as I was preparing this week, uh, just didn't write a conclusion. Because <laughs> I just didn't exactly know where to go. And, and there's so many different ways I go with this and was trusting the Lord to just meet me in worship. And so here, I'm just going to talk to you, real life talk right now, to close this out. I know, well, t- let me talk to two people. One would be first the person that is not trusted in Jesus yet. Here's what I'd say to you. Right now, you might be in a place where like everything is broken, all the promises of this world, fame and power and uh, comfort and ease and health and everything that this place, instant gratification, everything this place promises you is going to bring you joy and hope and happiness. Maybe it's, it's all failing. <laughs> now, just say that's because nothing in this world can fill up in your heart what only Jesus can fill. Right? There, there's nothing that can last long enough. Like the best things, they don't last long enough. And they go away and they, they break but we have a heavenly city. If you would trust Jesus to forgive your sins, you could have him now and forever, like right now, to say, I'm at the end of myself. And, and here's what I'd say to you if you're in here, you're watching, and you're like, you know what, Pastor, actually everything is going pretty great. It won't forever. Sickness is going to come. Brokenness is going to come. Financial hardship is going to come. All sorts of stuff is going to come. And what I want to tell you is that our Savior is gentle and lowly and tender. When it comes, I just want you to hear me say, come to Jesus in that moment, whether that's a year from now or five years from now or 50 years from now, and he will fully, freely, and forever bring you into his presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And if you're here and you're trusting in Jesus, what I know from my own life and from pastoring is that most of you are exhausted by an obsession with the present. Um, you're exhausted with uh, health worries. You're exhausted with worries about your extended family. You're exhausted with worries about your kids. You're exhausted with your failures. You're exhausted with just trying to keep up at work. Like you're stressed and you're anxious and you're you're running around just trying to find a place to find a day of rest and you're just generally playing games and you're looking at stuff on the internet to numb the present pain and you're, you're doing all sorts of other things to numb the pain because life is just broken and it's hurting and it hurts you and it's broken you. What I want to say to you is that there is a living hope that you can lean into again. There is a Savior who paid for your sins. He came into the mess. He lived the life you couldn't live. Right? He died the death you deserve to die. He did that while you were yet sinners. And by His Spirit, right now, in my voice, from this word, He's saying, remember, <laughs> you can't mess up my promises, but oh, I want to invite you into fuller life and fuller joy so I can come and say, well done. 
You, you don't have to be hopeless. And I just wonder if you would let the, the future hope of glory in your, your settled identity in Jesus, a faith that believes God exists and that he'll reward you if you draw near to him because of Jesus, if you would let that settle on you and just tenderly let him shepherd your heart and just stop playing games and take off the mask and lay your burdens at his feet and just live with him today, enjoy him today, love him today, walk with him today and do that and just let that kind of wash over your family and your workplace and your neighborhood. Like that, That's what's going on here. Is that Abraham is mourning. He's living in this present, but he is looking to a future promise. He's looking to a future promise based on all these past ways that God has met him. And I just long for you to be set free from your shame and your anxiety and your burdens and your guilt and your anxious kind of life on the treadmill trying to keep up appearances, trying to keep up achievement, trying to be busy enough and have enough that people tell you well done enough when that's already been said by your Savior to you. He's already accomplished it and He's going to bring you home. Like what would happen to God's people in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplace if God just burst our bubbles and our facades and we just let him love us. And we walked into his presence and said, I just want to love other people like you love me. I'm going to pray for us now, Lord. Thank you for, thank you for your shepherding of our hearts. Lord, there are some listening right now, watching right now that don't yet know you, and I pray that you would speak to them now in a way that would draw them in. Save them from their sins. Give them eternal life. And Lord, for all all your weary, broken, tired, struggling, anxious saints walking through trials, walking through sin, walking through a million different circumstances, busier than we were ever meant to be. God, would this be a moment where you would remind us that you're our good shepherd and you, you are for us and not against us in Jesus and you will keep us, and we will dwell in your presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.